Good evening again. Esther chapter 9 tonight. We're going to finish the book of Esther. Well, I thought maybe we just do chapter 9 and then we leave chapter 10. You know, all three verses for next week. No, I'm just kidding. Now we'll go ahead and finish it up tonight. And um, we, uh, we're going to get started here. I, I don't, um, a lot of times I'll kind of recap where we are, but uh, the nice thing for us in chapter 9, um, the Holy Spirit, through the author, does it for us at the end of chapter 9. So we will, we will save that for the reading. And so we're going to pick up right away in verse 1, and I'm going to read just the first uh, sentence in verse 1, and um, we'll talk about this particular day uh, where we kick off here. Um, Chapter 9, verse 1, now in the 12th month, that is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. And um, this particular day, if you guys remember back, is uh, what everything's been culminating towards, right? If you remember Esther um, chapter 3, verse 11, we see the edict or the first command that went out. And this is what I would call uh, the one influenced by Haman, right? And this command came out, Esther uh, chapter 3, verse 11, and the king said to Haman, And he's talking about the Jews here. The money and the people are given to you to do with them as seems good to you. And so this is the first command that came out. And this command was supposed to be executed on this same day, which is the 12th month of Adar and the 13th day. Now, there's another command, as you guys remember from last week, in Esther chapter 8, verse 11. Um, after Esther uh, and Mordecai um, make intercession or um, approach the king, this second command goes out. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little child and women and to plunder their possession. And so to start off the night, before we get into this particular day that we're looking at here in chapter 9, what I wanted to do is um, kind of make a comparison, right? What we're looking at is a physical story, but there's a parallel of spiritual realities that we see here. Uh, First, the first edict through Haman, a picture of the flesh. He was an Amalekite or the Esther um, specifically calls him an Agagite, which is from King Agag, the Amalekite. Um, and it's a picture of the flesh. Uh, the first edict, um, chapter 3, it, you can look at this as when this one went out, it brought about, and it says at the end of chapter 3 that the people were perplexed. There was no hope. It was death and destruction the first edict that goes out is uh, equivalent to what happened in the garden with Adam, right? When um, God gave him the choice of eating from the tree uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, 
But he said, in that day that you do eat of it, you shall surely die. And this first edict by Haman brings about death, right? And we'll see here in chapter 9 that many chose that path, that first path, that first Adam, and um, follow that path, right? And if you um, look at the second edict from um, Esther, the one who makes intercession to the king, Esther, goes in front of the king and makes intercession on behalf of the people uh, to um, plead for them, for plead for the people, and goes in front of the king. The second edict goes out, and we see at the end of chapter 8, uh, it specifically said that it was met, those who received the second edict, it was met with gladness, joy, and honor to those who received it. Uh, this indeed was the good news that went out, that there was hope in life um, that was made possible uh, because Esther, by the side of the king, made intercession for the people. And so we see this parallel of the old covenant and the new covenant uh, kind of laid out before us here. And uh, one of the things I think is interesting is according, as it's been said many times as we're going through Esther, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, you cannot change. So that first edict that went out by Haman, the king couldn't decide to change it. Uh, I think Pastor Victor said last week that uh, they, were, they were looked upon like God, so they couldn't screw up, right? So the first one had to be right. <laughs> um, so they couldn't change it. So um, this reminds me of, you know, how the Bible talks about God. In Malachi, it says, for I am the Lord, I do not change, right? Um, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, we read that, uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And thank God that he doesn't change, right? Because there's a lot of promises I'm depending on, <laughs> and I'm very thankful that God does not change. Um, and much like what we're looking at here tonight, that first edict that went out, it doesn't get tossed aside, right? The wages of sin is still death. The difference of what we saw in chapter 8 is that now the people had a choice. They could choose the way of Haman. They had that choice. And we'll see tonight as we're looking through chapter 9, many took that option, right? Uh, the way of Haman that led to death. Uh, but others, as the message went out, and I was thinking of this when Pastor Victor was talking about how I think he was saying that they were working hard to translate the message, you know, and the good news was coming out. And every tribe, tongue, and language, I think of the verse in Revelation, right? Every tribe, tongue, and language. And the effort that went into translating the news uh, so that it would be dispersed through the entire kingdom, right? All 127 provinces. And that good news would come out, and those who received it were filled with joy and hope because that good news, they accepted it, and they chose to follow the new covenant or the good news, the second edict that comes out um, thanks to Esther making intercession for the people. And so pretty cool parallel. Like anything in the Old Testament, you could, you could probably pick at it a little bit, right? You could say, well, I mean, Xerxes comparing him to God, I don't know about that, so I, I get all that. Uh, but there is a, like a spiritual reality that kind of unfolds for us here. And then when we get to chapter 9, as we're going to go through tonight, those decisions that were made in chapter 8, kind of the days of grace, or the years of grace, we call them, right? Um, when they had to make the choice, when the word came forward and they made the choice, now in chapter 9, those decisions are going to be sealed, 
right? And this day will come where those decisions are going to be sealed for the people. And so let's um, go to part, part two of verse one. So the second uh, sentence in verse one, on the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. In that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man, Mordecai, became increasingly prominent. And so we see here, this fear fell upon them. And um, I, it, just this section of, it's, it's kind of interesting because I don't know the numbers. We, we see how many perished in chapter 9. I don't know how many Jews were gathered together and what the fight looked like and what the odds looked like. But what we do know is this fear fell upon the people. Um, and it reminded me of Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. If you guys remember, um, Joshua sends out spies into Jericho at the house of Rahab. And I don't think the children of Israel realized how much fear had fell upon them until, the Josh, until these spies reported back. But in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, Rahab speaking and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Um, I was talking to uh, Hannah a little bit last night about Esther and, and um, kind of comparing it to, to what happened with Moses and Pharaoh and just all the supernatural events in Exodus that we see, you know, how um, the, the children of Israel um, uh, leave, leave Egypt and all the, the supernatural events that took place for, for, that, for Pharaoh finally to relent. And um, comparing that to Esther, where it's like, there's no supernatural events, it seems like, right? And we're going through the book, and it's like, this just seems like God's working behind the scenes through very natural things, people doing what they want to do. And God's still working behind the scenes. But, um, and I was saying, yeah, I guess there's not really any supernatural events that I can think of. And then I was kind of reviewing my notes for today, and I thought, that fear, though, is supernatural, I think. I mean, it's almost similar to what happened here um, with, with Joshua and uh, the, the inhabitants of Jericho, um, because the results we'll see as we're going through chapter 9 are devastating. I mean, it seems like God just just tore them down, all of these, um, the, all of the individuals that went the way of Haman. Um, so verse 5, thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, also Parshandatha, Dolphon, Aspeth, Aspatha, Poratha, Adala, Aridatha, Parmashata, 
Aresia, Aridia, and Vazatha. I made it, guys. Uh, <laughs> I was intimidated by that verse. Uh, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about this, and Pastor Victor talked about it a little bit last week, where it says they did not lay a hand on the plunder. And it actually is covered uh, three times in chapter 9. It says that they did not lay a hand on the plunder. And, you know, you guys know if the Holy Spirit says it once, it's important. If it says it three times, there's a reason why it's saying it three times in this chapter. Um, I suspect that this goes back to Saul. Uh, that's my suspicion, why it's said so many times, that there was a specific purpose why they carried out um, not, not only self-defense, obviously, they had the right to defend themselves, but also the justice that was carried out here. And it wasn't the, the Holy Spirit, God, the Jews, didn't want people to be confused. It was done for dishonest gain. And so it was said multiple times. Um, I want to take you back a little bit and remember the kind of the beginning of uh, God's wrath against the Amalekites. I mean, it probably started before here, but um, one popular verse that we can look at is Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 18. And we read, remember what Amalek did to you on your way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. And so, obviously, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, they weren't a uh, formed military or anything like that, but they did have strong men. And then while they're journeying, um, Amalek decided to pick off those who were, who were lame, maybe, or who were caring for young kids or who were old. And they were straggling at the back, and Amalek decided to pick them off, uh, rob them, kill them. And, um, and God was, was angry, obviously, uh, with this. And to King Saul, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 2 through 3, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came out of Egypt. You've got to remember... Thank you. <laughs> now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so it's a specific command to destroy everything. There's not a, an allowance to take plunder, to take any goods from Amalek. Everything was to be destroyed and to be done with. And Amalek, as we know, or the Amalekites, are a picture of the flesh. Um, what you guys know from, you know, we went through first uh, and second Samuel, what Saul did was a partial victory. He defeated the Amalekites, yes, but he took, you know, what he told Samuel is, well, I think, you know, the account as Samuel comes in, he's like, what's, what's the sound of those animals, right? What, the, the lowing of the, the sheep or whatever, right? What's that sound? And he's like, well, you know, yeah, we beat them, but we took some of the best stuff for ourselves, you know? And so he took a plunder. And it was exactly against what God commanded. Not only that, but he took Agag, if you remember, and Samuel had to take care of business with Agag. But we also know he took, he, he let um, 
uh, some of Agag's descendants live because we have Haman and here in Esther, which is a descendant of Agag. Um, so we, we see there this uh, partial victory, right? And a full disobedience to what God had commanded him to do. And I think part of the reason why we see this in Esther, where it says they did not lay hand on the plunder, is looking back to this, what Saul did, and it wasn't going to be that way in this time. Uh, it was going to be a full victory over the flesh, over the Amalekites. And one of the, as you look back, you know, as I was struggling through those sons of, um, sons of Haman, you know, struggling through those names, you know, when you kind of read through this, you kind of want to skip that part. You know, just say the 10 sons of Haman, let's keep going, right? And not read that part. Um, because it, it's like, why are they there? And I think it's kind of interesting, actually, a couple of things about this. If you, has anybody been a part of a Purim, uh, Purim uh, festival or anything? You, okay, you have. Um, have you been a part of the reading of Esther during that? Okay. Now, what I see here is, this is according to the Talmud, the names of all of Haman's sons should be read in a single breath. I'm looking at David. Did you hear it like this? Maybe. Okay. Uh, should be read in a single breath because they all died at the same moment. By reading about their deaths in a single breath, we indicate that the deaths were not 10 separate events, but a single moment when they all died. So I thought we would just, we would just uh, do it. You guys want to do it? No, I'm joking. And then whoever doesn't pass out gets to finish teaching. Um, <laughs> but that would, that would be a challenge to do that in a single breath. But that's apparently what they do during a uh, Purim uh, festival or a um, part of the, the presentation there of the book of Esther. Um, but there's another interesting things about these names. Uh, when I looked at some of the text and I put a couple of pictures, the first one's really hard to see. But I was looking at some of the pictures of the ancient scrolls. And um, I'll, I'll show you the second one in a minute. But what you're looking at here, this is a leather scroll, obviously. And you can see kind of the text off to the left and off to the right. And the list you see are the names of the sons of Haman. And so not only are they in the Bible, in the book of Esther here, but they're very prominent as far as how they're written. Um, and here, here's another version uh, this is a more of a modern scroll. This one's only a few hundred years old. Um, a little more visible. Now, we don't know what it looked like in the original scroll, so I'm not pretending to know exactly what it looked like in the original. We don't have the original scroll of Esther. Uh, but it's interesting that all the ancient scrolls have it listed like this. You know, it makes, there's a possibility that it was like this in the original scroll. And it reminds me of like a to-do list or a grocery list um, that it's very, you know, like, listing it down like that. And it tells me not only is it important that their names are here, but they're there for a reason, especially this, this prominently listed. Uh, so I went through and pulled up the, the meanings of the names. And so I'm just going to read, I'm not going to read their names again, because it's, it's very tough for me, but um, I'll read the meanings of each one of their names. Uh, so the first one is curious self, or I am curious. Uh, the second is weeping self, the idea of self-pity, you know, like, woe is me, always thinking about pitying yourself. Uh, the third is assembled self, uh, being self-sufficient. Uh, the fourth is self-indulgent. Uh, the 
The fifth is a humbled, humbled self or, or weak self. Um, the sixth is strong self or self-assertive. Uh, the seventh is self-ambitious uh, or preeminent self is another kind of translation there. Uh, the eighth is bold self or I am bold. Uh, the ninth is dignified self or I am superior. And the tenth is pure self or very self-righteous. And they all have the, uh, the idea of, of self. And um, I think it's, you know, obviously it's in the text for a reason. And I think um, the Holy Spirit wanted us to know that these things were put to death. <laughs> you know, these aspects of the flesh, all of them with a specific meaning, all of them from Haman, uh, were put to death this day. Um, so I found that kind of interesting. Now Spurgeon tells us, now it was, this is uh, Charles Spurgeon, now it was God's intent that the last conflict should take place between Israel and Amalek. The conflict which began with Joshua in the desert was to be finished by Mordecai in the king's palace. And as far as I can tell, um, I, I did a Google search. I don't know how reliable Google is. It's not as reliable as the Bible, I know that. But I did a Google search, and I just searched, you know, last historical reference of the Amalekites. And um, it actually came up with the wrong thing. It, you know, they need to update their AI. It said during the time of Hezekiah and Chronicles. Well, this is after Hezekiah. So, um, so I don't know how it came up with that, but it came up an Encyclopedia Britannica that said that. Um, anyways, so... That's kind of interesting, but this, as far as we could tell, is the last of the Amalekites. You know, the last historical reference of the Amalekites here. Um, okay, so verse, uh, back to Esther, verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan, the, the citadel, was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan, the citadel, and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's 10 sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. And um, some of the uh, commentaries and teachers that I respect very much um, say that Esther was a little, like, bloodthirsty. Like, you know, this went so well the day before, let's have another day of it. Uh, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, the, you know, part of that reason was, you, you know, the sons were killed on, the, on the, the first day of this. And then she says, well, now let's put them on the gallows. And, you know, and it's like, well, they're already dead, you know. <laughs> Do they need to be up on the gallows? Um, but I don't think that's the case. I, I think that um, this is much like, unlike this the spirit of, you know, Saul that we saw with the Amalekites, this is much more like the like kind of the spirit of Joshua when he goes in and conquers the land, where it's like, no, we need to complete this job, 
and it's going to be on public display for everybody to see that the flesh has been put to death. And um, that's the way I take it, the way I like to think of it, um, but I really think that that's what's happening here. Now, the rest of the provinces, they, they, it ended. It was a one-day event, but in Shushan, it was a two-day event, and these 10 sons were hanged on the gallows, and you remember day one, 500 people were killed, and then day two, 300 people. Uh, verse 16 the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and the rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as the 14th day, and on the 15th day of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Um, we're going to talk about the, uh, well, let's keep going. I'm going to go through verse uh, 22. Uh, verse 19, therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far, who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them. <laughs> and from morning to holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. And you get, you know, I guess David probably knows this, that um, on, they, they, they dress up, right, David, I guess? And uh, Esther is a common uh, dress up for the girls. And so I'm guessing the, the first one is Esther, Queen Esther, right, dressed up there. Now, I was trying to, one, trying to guess who the second one in the picture is. Um, you know, you would think Mordecai, but based on his face, I'm thinking that's Haman for sure, right? <laughs> He's about to be sent to the gallows. And so, but, um, but I guess this is the uh, part of the tradition. It's, it's a uh, costume, much like Halloween he is here, that Purim is celebrated this way. And uh, the kids then, I guess, well, probably everybody dresses up on <laughs> David, yeah. Pretty sure. Um, so what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to read through the, the end all the way to chapter, through chapter 10 now, and then I'll close with some final thoughts. Uh, we're going to look at, as we go through this, it is a bit of a recap, like I said in the beginning, of what happened and while they're doing this. And so it's a little bit of just narrative. So we'll, uh, I'm going to take a drink, and then we'll go all the way to the end of chapter 10, and then, and then we'll close. All right, verse 23. So the Jews accepted the custom which they began as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them and to cast pur, that is, the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he com commanded by letter that this wicked plot which Haman had devised against the Jews 
should return on his own head, and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they called these days Purim after the name Pur. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter and what happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and, they de- and their descendants and all who would join them, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instruction and according to the prescribed time, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city, that these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, with words of peace and truth, to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed time, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them, and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim, and it was written in the book. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea, Now all the acts of his power and might in the account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second to the king Ahasuerus and was great among the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. What a great finish. Don't you wish you had a government official like that? Somebody we can vote for like that? Seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all of his countrymen. That would be something, huh? Um, And Mordecai reminds me a little bit, you know, as it finishes off here of uh, uh, Joseph, right? Um, Second second in in command there uh, to Pharaoh. Um, So just... Uh, the, the final thought, and I actually, I stole this from Rick, so Rick, thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, this, uh, I think it was after Pastor Jonathan taught one week, and Rick came up and he said, isn't it cool how Esther uh, made intercession for the people, you know, just like Jesus does for us. And so I'm going to just close with Romans 8, uh, 34. Uh, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. And isn't that a great thing, uh, that we have an intercessor by our King, by Father God, making intercession for us, standing in the gap for us, and looking out for us. So that we close there, and um, I'll pray. And then if anybody has any thoughts about Esther, we can, we can open it up, so. Generally, Father, Lord, thanks again for gathering us here tonight. Um, I just pray that uh, you uh, just be with us as we go from this place, Lord. I just pray that we continue to walk with you. Uh, just as we're going through Esther here at the end and looking at these attributes of the flesh of Haman's sons, Lord, I know that 
many of those attributes exist in me and in this room, and I just pray that you just continue to work on us and, and show us those areas that we need to work on, Lord, and cut away that flesh from our lives. And Lord, we just love you and praise you in Jesus' name.